0: I'm Denise, I'm the Scottish one. And she's a non fiction editor. And I'm Louise, the English one. And she's a fiction editor.
1: And together. We're the editing podcast. Hello and welcome to The Editing Podcast. So this week we're delighted to welcome our guest and friend, editor and technical writer, the relentlessly helpful Jonas Asperian.
0: <laughs> you had to get that in there, didn't you, Louise? But yes, hello, John, and we have to say you are relentlessly helpful. Now, Louise and I go way back with John because he's a former director of the Chartered Institute of Editing and Proofreading, uh, where he used to be its internet director, but that's nowhere near all that he's got up his sleeve. So, John, why don't you tell our listeners about yourself and what you do?
2: Nice one. Thank you, Louise and Denise, for having me on the show. Um, yes, I'm a technical writer, so that um, I've, be, I've been doing that now for the past 11 years and um, as an independent, uh, based at home, uh, writing consultant, and also an editor, and so part of that time was uh, spent as a director of what was the SFEP, the Society for Editors and Proofreaders, that's now the CIEP. Um, yep. So I did that for about five years, and that was good in building my profile and teaching me a little bit about the the editing and proofreading industry. And uh, these days I help people uh, write content for their business-to-business um, material so websites case studies blogs and things like that and also I'm starting to help people with their LinkedIn presence so that's what's been keeping me busy the last few years
1: hmm. so um let's start with some big news though because you've published a book congratulations yay tell us, tell us about it what it's called who it's for and what it teaches
2: thank you um yes the book is called uh, content dna and the strap line of this book is using consistency and congruence to be the same shape everywhere. And over the last 10 years of helping people uh, write content and stand out with their personal brands, I've found that it's just really important to define who it is that your business is trying to be, what shape you have, and then to show up for long enough to actually make an impression on people so that you get noticed and remembered and preferred. So this is aimed at mainly small business owners who want to have better control over their marketing so that even if they don't produce their own content, they can be better informed and instruct the service providers they use to create the kind of content that actually gets people to take action and gets people to remember you and prefer you. So that's pretty much w- what the book is about. It's 10 years of my experience with copywriting clients, so it's got all of my best tips and tricks in there and um and I hope that it will be helpful.
0: Yeah, I mean it sounds great For and him. I think I think that is something that people really do need to get their head around um, when they're building an audience and building their own brand. Um, So we'll make sure there's a link to the book in the show notes so people can pick up a copy. But John, uh, what's really interesting to us from the point of view of the podcast is the editing process. Um, And because you're an editor and a technical writer who focuses on making stuff accessible, you know what's involved in bringing a high quality book to market. So first off, so that other business writers can understand how to do this well and efficiently, could you outline for us the first part of the writing process, that point where you came up with the concept, how you did that and how you then turned that into a book?
2: Well, I came up with a concept about uh, two years ago. So yeah, we're two years in the making for this book. Um, And it was informed by two things. Firstly, the the consultations that I have with copywriting clients, where I always start with asking them what the DNA of their business is. And I very rarely get a good answer back for that. Mm. So I always end up having to dig into that with people. So I thought. I mean, for the benefit of people who don't want to spend thousands of pounds working with me on writing consultation and then rewriting their website, maybe you could put those lessons into somewhere more accessible. So that was, that was part of this idea. And secondly, my marketing mentor, uh, Mark Schaefer, he talks a lot about congruence in his writing. And that word has always interested me. I've had a math maths background so congruent triangles and that kind of thing just find nerdily interesting Um, in terms of mapping out the content for this book I probably did it all the wrong way I used lots and lots of little snippets of ideas rather than being more organized and writing out my chapter titles to begin with I think if I were to advise anyone else who were looking to write their own book I would say spend a lot of time getting a load of chapter titles sorted first and then write to that brief, you know, define your own mm-hmm. brief and then write to that. What I actually did is put together lots of snippets of ideas and tested ideas on social media to see what got the best reactions and then started to piece that together. So it's it's taken a lot longer to do it in a kind of Slightly haphazard, jumping around form, where I would write a bit of one section and then move to a totally different one. It would have been better to be more structured about it.
1: There's an endless discussion about that, though, in the writing community broadly. I think, though, that issue about you know, do I plan or do I pants it, and and it it really does. I think creatively, it really just people sometimes think, oh, you know, planning would be better, but actually, for some people, sometimes the whole sort of organic development of an idea is just the way it goes and you you did get there in the end and perhaps if you if you had chosen to do it in a more structured way particularly given your um you know your nerd your 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 nerdy math background (laughs) um you might still have, have found that actually it didn't quite hold the 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 power or the engagement or that that personality element of it so you know maybe this was just the way it had to go for you.
2: Indeed, maybe it did. Um, I know for a fact that if I do write a second book, that it will be a shorter process because I will do that upfront yeah. planning you of chapter titles. Try it. Yes, yeah. that's I, right. I
0: think, I think also, John, you've um, you would have had a lot of content that you'd already produced to to draw on from for this book. I would think um, because of your you know content marketing um, yeah. knowledge. So. I can see absolutely how that would be a process of almost like sifting through that, yeah. as you say, testing it and seeing yeah. what works with your audience and what doesn't, and not so not necessarily a linear process. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, as Louise says, it's it's just what works best at any given time. And, and you, as you say, your second book maybe completely different in how you approach it but uh, yeah yeah that,
2: that, that's a good good point because i mean since i started learning uh content marketing around 2016 um i started producing uh what i ended up calling a business blogging guide which has got a kind of start to end of how you think of ideas and how long it takes you to write this kind of stuff and what kind of problems you need to solve for your customers so, I started writing blogs on that topic, and then, when I was coming to you know plan the book, I did go back and read all of my old blog posts to see what were the best ideas that I could condense into a book. Mm. And when i started when I started doing that, there was a kind of anxiety over thinking, well, if I put these ideas into a book and then charge for it, but that content is already out there on the internet for free. But I think that's just generally true of pretty much all content absolutely yeah Um, yeah
0: yeah and
2: and, and so 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 structuring it and and developing and updating um, and putting it together in some kind of narrative I think has value and therefore people would be willing to oh definitely
1: I think also some people don't want to bounce around on a blog you know it's it can (laughs) be quite tiring if you want to access a lot of content that's kind of been my approach as well I mean I think that I think that sometimes people want something that they can grab off their desk where, yeah. you know, what a one-stop shop. And that's what yeah. Content DNA has done. It's taken some of your, the, all the structured work that you've done, but over time from here and there and there and there and pulled it all together so that people have got a one-stop resource. And I think that's the value in it, regardless of whether you could get snippets of ideas or you know bits and pieces here or elsewhere so yeah
2: and the the other thing about the you know the way that the internet is structured is that any page could be page 1 on the internet whereas this is put into a logical progression yep. um, yeah and also you know there'll be a digital version of this so that people can read it on their kindle or and there'll, there'll also be an audio version yeah. so um
1: it's about um, responding to people's um different yeah. preferences for for that's consuming a, stuff isn't it and learning a, yeah So, John, when the writing was over, how did you tackle the editing process? Was there a process of, um, well, I'm assuming there was, a process of self revision? And was that, um, you've you've actually talked about this already, but maybe you can sort of focus in on it again for the purposes of of thinking about editing. Um, Was it structural as well as at sentence level? And at what stage did you get others on board as fresh eyes and how many passes did you take the, the book through that kind yeah. of nitty gritty of the editing processes
2: is... yeah i mean my, my my number one advice for this is always to give the text as much read uh, as much breathing time as possible so i tried to write without editing myself at all and then mm-hmm. just to put the writing away and leave it for a while and then i would come back and, and do sentence level edits uh, later on um and I and I did do quite a lot of that revision myself. Got it into what I thought was a decent stage before unleashing it on <laughs> a dozen <laughs> beta readers. Right. Um, so my beta reading period was actually quite short. It was only about a fortnight or so, but that gave everyone enough time to get through the content and give me some good feedback. Um, and then I thought, for, you know, I incorporated quite a few changes as a result of that before submitting the manuscript to a professional editor so that I could uh, I could get a proper um, considered editorial view of the content
0: yeah Yeah. and that's absolutely worth um, emphasizing to to listeners is that John is an editor but he still needs an editor (laughs) even editors need editors because we cannot edit our own work can we so, John, um tell us a bit about how you went the process you went through in picking your editorial team. Um, how did you um, evaluate their suitability for working on content DNA, and how long did you decide to schedule for this part of the publishing process? You said your um, beta reading process was fairly short just a couple of yeah. weeks, but did you yeah. allow a bit longer for your editorial team to do their work?
2: Yes. Um, picking of the team actually was quite straightforward because I chose people who I already knew, who I'd already worked with before, and I could I could be sure of the quality that they put into my, to my project. Mm-hmm. So both of them uh, are CIEP members. Um, and so I picked a copy editor and I picked a proofreader. Mm-hmm. Uh, in total, they spent, I would say, about seven weeks on the yeah. project yeah. um and you know that both have worked in uh, nonfiction non-fiction uh, publishing before so mm-hmm. i was pretty confident that they do a good job and as i say i've already hired them so it just seemed like a no-brainer
0: yeah yeah yep. yep. that makes total sense
1: so one thing i'm really interested in and i know denise's is too is um <laughs> How did you find the process of being edited? I always think this is interesting to hear any author's take on this, but especially when that author's other job is to sit on the other side of the desk doing editing or, 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 or the, the writing creation process. So what was it like for you? Did you get the jitters? Did anything crop up that surprised you about where your writing had come unstuck? Because it's one thing to unpick and bring clarity to another person's writing, but quite a different thing to actually write something yourself and, and, and be on the receiving end of that.
2: Yeah, I was um, I was pretty comfortable with the process because I've already submitted myself to that process before. There was a period where I would have all of my blogs professionally edited, um, and I think I've long advised every editor, any editor who's listening to this. I think the the best thing that you can do to improve your business is to is to write something and submit yourself to the editorial process. Because mm-hmm. I don't think. I don't think you can have empathy with your clients until you've actually been through the pain of being edited. <laughs> uh, and That's a great point. Yeah, because it, you know you you have an intelligent person who's trying to help you on the other end, and they might completely eviscerate your writing. It might it might be terrible, and you think, well, wow, you know that that really hurts. The first time it happens, it can really hurt. When you've mm. done it as often as I have. It doesn't bother me at all because I know the other person isn't trying to, if you pick the right editor, that is, they're not trying to do any kind of intellectual point scoring or, you know, put you down or anything. Yeah. They are just trying to reveal the ideas that are in your head the best way they can. That's, that's all they're doing. They are trying to lift you up rather than put you down. So yeah. it's something that you should... Be, you know be grateful for but it is it can be quite galling the first time it happens that, that anyone would question yeah. what you've yeah. written yeah. um but yes I, I've, I've done it enough now that I was fully expecting what came my way and it's, it's been really really helpful and the book is immeasurably better for the editorial input that it's had um so even though I spent a lot of time on it I've got an editorial background. I write professionally for a living already. It's not just a side project for me with with a different kind of business. Despite all of that, um, the editing process helped me. And there's there's no substitute for having a second pair or third pair of eyes on your content to to, to reveal the things that you were too close to to spot.
1: That's brilliant advice, John. I think that's
0: so useful for our listeners to hear because... Um, You know, submitting yourself to editing isn't easy and, and it's great to hear from an editor who's been edited that it has improved your book. Um, immeasurably, in your own words, because that that value that's there from having somebody else professionally have a, another look at it is um, is is so useful to have. So so, John, let's have a wee chat about the design of your book. Um, now we have to say the cover of your book is beautifully aligned with your business branding; mm. it fits right in there. Yeah. Um, so tell us how you went about that process and. Who else is involved? I know who else is involved, but I want you to tell everybody, I want you to tell everybody else who that was. Yes, I
2: used a, um, a designer brand designer in Scotland called Cole Grey, a um, mutual friend of ours yes. who I've known for some years and who I gave a pretty clear brief to. you know my, my whole idea in the visuals for the book would be something that talks about having a unique shape and having a recognisable shape. And so he played on that idea to produce the the shapes that are on the front and back cover of the book. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to make things too fancy, but I think it represents me well. And Akol also has designed the visuals that I'm going to be using on the new version of my website which ought to be out sometime later this month in, in line with the release of the book so that the idea is that you should be the same shape everywhere and that that metaphor applies to the way you write but also the way your visuals look so that you can be instantly recognizable and even if even if someone is scrolling their social media feed at a million miles an hour, they might not even read your content, but they could recognise that it was you straight away. Yeah. Mm. It can be colours, it can be, you know, other visual components, but they just know, you know, they, they see a, a, a YouTube thumbnail or something, they just know it's it's that person without even reading any uh, text. Yeah. That's where you want to get because that way you just keep feeding people and, and you keep staying top of mind oh yeah that person still exists that person is still relevant to me in some way mm. and so that's what i wanted to get across in all of the the visuals that i use on in the book and uh, you know uh, uh, and on the website as well you,
1: you could take the, the name off that book uh, of content dna the author name and i think it would still ooze with john Asperian <laughs> and i think that's and that that's, that's a good thing it's recognizable that's the not yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's take from your, your name off it from mm-hmm. your stable so, um, yeah. yeah, good job. Good,
2: thank um, you. you.
1: You've got a lovely forward too. Now, again, Denise and I know who wrote this, but um, mm-hmm. tell <laughs> us about your forward. Who who uh, who wrote it? How did you persuade them? Um, why do you think it's worth business authors thinking about including forwards?
2: Yeah, well, my marketing mentor is Mark Schaefer. I've learned a lot about content marketing through him. Many of his lessons have uh, found their way into my writing, and so it seemed like a natural thing for me to ask him to, to write the foreword for this book. And also his book, Known, which he released three years ago, is probably my favourite business book. And when Mark read the manuscript for Content DNA, he said that it was an excellent companion for known so that was that was pretty much wow
1: that's amazing perfect
2: endorsement from him to say that Absolutely. so it it was natural for me to ask him so we had a chance to meet um probably about a year ago it was the third time in Bournemouth and I asked him there and he, he graciously accepted so I'm really honored to have his name on the front cover and on the inside of the book as well
0: yeah, And and that's definitely something that other business authors should think about. Um, wouldn't you think, John, that well, um, yeah, is, th- it's a I valuable so. thing? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you can have this kind of star quality that might attract you to a book. You know, if you've got a bigger name writing a foreword for you, and frankly, he is a big name without any doubt, in the, in the content marketing sphere. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's just generally good to have someone else set the scene rather than it just being one person's agenda. So um, I think it's a wise thing to do to always think about that and, uh, and try and find someone who is relevant and a leader in your industry. And they don't need to write that much for you. So it's not necessarily the most onerous task, but um, it's good for them. It's so a nice little bit of publicity for them and it's good support for the ideas that you're trying to put into the world. So for me, it makes absolute sense to get someone else to to preface your book like that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's worth saying also, it also makes sense to maybe approach somebody that you have some kind of connection or relationship <laughs> with and like you yes. say, who's relevant and not just picking some um, person who's who's never heard of you before, but you know, you had that relationship with Mark, so it absolutely made sense to to ask him and uh, yeah, it works yeah both of you really doesn't it yeah, yeah
2: no no doubt and I, and I wouldn't use the word mentor lightly and he really, he really has been that he's one of the very very few people who will happily tell me when my content is terrible mm-hmm. and so um huh. <laughs> that comes that's from Im- the confidence of experience I <laughs> that's suppose. important uh, though isn't yeah, it yeah. yeah that
0: honesty yeah it yeah. is
2: and yeah. so he's given me he's given me his endorsement his blessing for this book so i'm really really chuffed with that and it's uh, it's fantastic to be able to involve him in the story
0: yeah, great. Let's uh, let's talk money for a little bit, John. Uh, what about pricing and sales? Uh, I, I'd be interested to know how you went about deciding how much to charge for content DNA. And perhaps you could walk listeners through how you've gone about making the book visible.
2: Yeah, well, I was originally thinking about something in the £10 mark. And then mm-hmm. when it came to the time of thinking, well, if I do an initial print run, uh, for pre-orders that that i control myself um, then i'm gonna have to take a hit on postage myself and that kind of thing so i ended up going for an initial launch price of 12 pounds mm-hmm. um, going to be distributing that mostly through ingram spark so that'll mean it'll go out to amazon and apple mm-hmm. ibooks and uh-huh. Barnes and Noble and probably a few other places too and uh, the the main way that i 've promoted it is the main way that I promote everything else really is is through my presence on LinkedIn through my email list and through my website and those are my, those are my main channels for getting my message out into the world and in fact, I say as much in the book is that you should you should focus on something that is your home base because that that will be immovable on the internet something that you have full control over and then pick one social channel and try and dominate that as much as possible um and if you can use email to keep in touch with people too that's a good idea so website email and linkedin and that is my way of reaching my audience
1: and you've built i'm a massive audience (laughs) on um, uh, linkedin john so it it absolutely makes i mean you're, you're 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 the 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 proof that 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 technique works, you know, that you've, you've 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 focused on a, a platform where you believed your core audience was hanging out, yeah. and you 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 committed to that, and you've yeah. built up that audience so that you could springboard off as, as soon yeah. as, yeah, brilliant.
0: Lu- Louise beat me to it because I was just about to say the exact same thing about the fact that you've you've built your audience, and I think that's an important lesson for any writers listening: is don't wait until you've written your book to try and find your audience you need to find that audience first and Uh, and have have an audience to sell to really it makes especially I think with business books um um, you, you need to have that audience waiting, ready and waiting for you to, uh, to promote your book too.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think it's really, really important that people realise that we all have a personal brand, regardless of whether we work for ourselves or whether we work for a business. And the best thing that you can do is to take steps to build that personal brand. Even if you don't have anything to sell right now, it will buffer you for the periods where you know times are hard so for example having a ready made audience means that i can still you know feed my family during coronavirus mm-hmm. um, uh, and when you do have something to sell you you got you've got a ready made uh, set of people who are bought into you and willing to listen to your message that the, the key thing that a lot of people just just can't get their heads around is that this stuff takes time to build Mm, up very good point very good point keep getting questions more and more these days seeing from people seeing loads of likes and comments and 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 stuff on my linkedin posts and say how can i get that and my answer is you know probably depressingly simple for them do 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 the same kind of things for a long period.
1: You have to do the work, don't you? You yeah. have to put the grind in. It's, it's, yeah. it's There's no shortcuts to this strategy. Yeah. Um, but,
2: there really but isn't.
1: But there really is a huge amount of benefit, but you have to be committed.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's the alternative between getting success now by paying for ads or building a long-term content footprint that, that is a slow, slow burn. Mm. Uh, but eventually, it it creates... It creates an empire really, you know, it creates something that you can that works for you night and day, regardless of whether you're around and, and that, it, that can serve you for years to come.
1: And I think it's bigger than you yourself. It, it takes on a life of its own, whereas like a Facebook ad a book ad or for example lasts as long as it lasts. Yeah, and once it's gone, true. it's out it's not it's that thing you mentioned earlier about being top of mind. Yeah. As soon as the ad's gone it's it's out of everyone's view but when you build a brand identity online as you've done then um that's that's in people's minds even when you're not visible on the yeah. screen or you know pix, pixelated in some way yeah. so
2: that's yeah. right and it's such a just it's such a credibility marker you know all of the people who have success are the ones who are putting out a consistent message and who, you know, they're creating things. And if you see someone who's got, you know, 400 podcast episodes, you just know straight away that person knows their stuff. They're not just turning up and chatting rubbish. They've stuck at it. And, you know, they're they're, they're naturally someone you're going to be more likely to trust. And, And so the sooner you can get started, the sooner you can build that and um, it now, now is as good a time as any to do it.
0: Yeah, okay, we're, we're mentioned... not quite at four hundred uh, podcast episodes yet, I Louise, but we're we're getting there.
1: <laughs> on One thing, just to to um before we go on to the next question, uh, is that John mentioned a key word there, and that was trust. That's what a lot of this is about, isn't it? It's about building trust. It's not it's not about just um churning out information that's sort of me, me, me. It's about it's about building people's trust and 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 helping them understand why you can help them and that's a it's a it's a different mindset that sometimes people struggle with and um that's what you've done john you've built trust um on particularly on one particular platform and with um knowledge that uh you've you've acquired and and that you're now sharing and so people trust that you know what you're talking about
2: yeah it's it's this is the fundamental thing i think about content marketing is that if you can put out something that helps your addressable audience and you can do it for long enough without blatantly selling to them you can just give them something that solves their problem Uh Um, if you do that for long enough they have no option but to trust you because you're just knocking out all of the barriers you're answering all of their questions uh Uh you're doing it in a helpful way and without doing any of the kind of salesy sleaze that turns people off and people are now more tuned than ever to the kind of rubbish that we used to get in online internet sales oh, back yeah. in the day yeah, yeah, yeah. and they they just want to get their they have their problems fixed they just yeah. want answers uh and they want someone not who's going to just tease them with something and then say they've got to pay a load of money to find out the rest yeah. Yeah. they want to get everything and if they do get everything why wouldn't they trust you why wouldn't they recommend you to someone else or hire you if they've got the budget um it's just it's a no brainer the only thing is it just takes it just takes time to build up
1: yeah yeah so let's have a think now about i mean you talked about there about um solving people's problems um let's talk about your day job and um technical writing and how you solve problems there can can you explain to listeners what that is because some people might be listening and thinking that sounds like Technical writing, that sounds, sounds like something to do with engineering. When I first heard yeah. the term, that's what I thought. And, but it's not, is it?
2: No, it's not. It's, it, this can confuse a lot of people. If I were to say that I was just a writer... Then, then people might think I was, you know, J.K. Rowling or something. Okay. If I were to say I was a copywriter on its own, um, the people who know what that term means might think that I was in the business of persuasion and influence and selling because that's what pure copywriting is. Mm-hmm. It is it's, a, it's the influence game. It's getting someone to support a political party or buy a product or, or support some other cause. Technical writing is much more neutral than that. It's about educating and explaining so it's best suited to things like support materials or process writing. So, for example, how does so-and-so work? You've already become a customer of something and you need to know how the product works. Well, that, that technical writing is perfect for that because it explains step-by-step clearly how a product works. You can also apply this to services and processes so it can work for things like recruitment or HR you know, where you need to be quite neutral, quite matter of fact, uh, very, very clear. But what, what I'm increasingly finding is that there's more of a crossover in this to just general copywriting for the web. People don't want that salesy, persuasive, long form letter style that, that oh. gets you to buy at the end. Mm-hmm. They want simple explanations. And I mean, it, it it's in particular focus now because of the the global pandemic that's going on is that we need clear, unambiguous information ah. that um, that leaves people in no doubt about what the facts are, without any kind of faff, without any kind of spin. And technical writing is really that. It's it's the you know it's extracting the emotion from things and giving people the facts so that any human can understand it. Um, and that that's what I do for businesses. And usually those businesses are either just too busy to create their own content, or very often they're just too close to it. Uh, and so mm. it needs an external pair of eyes to say, oh, I understand how this this product or service works. Um, let's explain it like this. And we use, you know, analogy and metaphor and whatever, but um, it, it's it's just, it takes them away from the cold face and lets me uh, understand the product and explain it in terms of other people would understand
0: mm. so john what are, what are sort of the typical sort of common problems that you might see with that type of writing and um, when your clients come to you and how would you generally go about fixing them are there are there common things that you can think of
2: well it's usually just fuzzy explanations yeah. that need to be clarified you know mm-hmm. so uh, very often the 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 clients will have the curse of knowledge. You know, they're so close to something that they will yeah, explain yeah, it. Yeah. they'll explain it in terms of, you know, th- th- assuming that the audience knows far more than they do. Mm. And what, I, what I've found from so many of the things that I've written in the past, especially on social media, is even the simple tips that you think, this is blindingly obvious and people will already know this, you'll get a reaction that goes, oh, I didn't know that, or that's really well explained, thank you. Yeah. Um, and you can apply that to business as well. So sometimes, you know, people might think it's dumbing down. It's not. No one will ever complain that you've made something too simple to understand. And so that, that's what I aim to do. And I get, get to the heart of why something uh, matters so that we can explain it more clearly.
1: i think that's 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 such a good point this this sort of idea of of you you can't you can never make anything too simple but you can certainly make it too complicated and um or complex and and so that that idea of 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 just making something accessible to everybody that's a great place to start
2: Hmm.
1: you're not cutting anybody out
2: yeah that's it. That, that, that's, uh, that just suits my style. And the thing I love about doing this kind of writing is that you, I take people from scratching their heads and going, oh, I don't get this at all, to giving them that moment of realisation where they, they suddenly go, oh, why didn't someone just say it like that to begin yeah. with? Yeah. And that's a wonderful feeling to transmit to, to another human being. And so that, that's, what, that's what helps me um, get through these jobs because sometimes they can be quite you know uh dense and complex and and, but you want to you want to see it in a way that thinks how can i make a light bulb go off in someone else's head and they they suddenly go all right i get the value of this or i understand how to do that thing i've been helped thank you very much that's 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 always what i aim to come out with whenever i do a, a writing project
1: John, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, not just for explaining that and the value of that, but but also for talking about your publishing process. it been really interesting. And we'll make sure all the links are in the show notes so that authors interested in your technical writing services and getting a copy of the excellent content DNA know how to get hold of you.
2: Fantastic. Thank you.
0: Thanks, John. Yeah. So now it's time for Editing Bytes. This is the part of the show where we offer listeners a favourite tool or resource to help them on their writing journey. So this week, mine is a book called The Tao of Twitter by Mark Schaefer, who John has already mentioned. Um, I saw Mark speak back in 2016 for the first time when I was first getting interested in content marketing and this was one of the first books I read and it really helped me to understand how to get the most out of Twitter by building and
1: engaging with an audience. And mine is something completely different. (laughs) It's agentquery.com. This is a free online directory of agents, and you can search by genre and subgenre, name and keyword. Now, the site's free, which means it's littered with advertisements. (laughs) But if you look past that, there's some excellent information, including contact details and submission guidelines.
0: So that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening to the Editing Podcast. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform
1: you prefer. Yeah. And thanks once again to John Asperian. um, Lovely guest. And uh, we've put all the links we've mentioned in the show notes. Bye for
0: now. Thanks, John. Bye.